John chapter 17 is a pretty dense chapter of Scripture. This is what's called uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what I have discovered in my study of Jesus' high priestly prayer is that this very easily should have been, at the very least, a six-week sermon series, just on this one chapter. So, with that in mind, I would invite you to pray for me and for yourselves as I preach a six-week sermon series in hopefully around 30 minutes. Deal? It doesn't have to be a real in-depth prayer. It can just be, Lord, help him. Especially when I get to about the 25-minute mark. Whoo, Lord, my uh, reservation at Perkins is coming up soon. Lord, help him. So let's stand together and we'll read John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me Out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have become, rather, have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with you, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, guys. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Holy Spirit, come be our teacher here this morning. We ask that as we open your word, that your word would open us. We ask that you would search our hearts and see if there be any impure way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, what we uh, find this morning in our text is, I want to begin here. Jesus begins by praying briefly for himself. Then he prays for the disciples. And as I mentioned while we were reading it, he prays for us. And that's what he's doing even still today, is he is at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. That's a great encouragement to us. What I want to draw our attention to is this. What we often call the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is actually better described as the disciples' prayer. That's the the prayer that Jesus gave the disciples to pray. But our Lord's prayer is what we've just read here in John chapter 17. This is in our text. We're still in Holy Week. Uh, We are 
in chronology, we're beyond Palm Sunday in Scripture, and we're at a place now where Jesus is in the upper room. We're not sure if he prayed this prayer in the upper room with the disciples or if they were uh, going down through the Kidron Valley, but this is right in that same time period, just before Jesus was denied and betrayed. And so keep that in mind as we read this. This is the, the true Lord's Prayer. What I want to really dive into in our text this morning, and there's a lot to it. We're going to actually skip over quite a bit in terms of exegesis, uh, drawing out of the text what's there. We're going to skip over a large chunk of that to focus on family traits that Jesus prays for the church. If I were to ask you what makes, uh, a mem- what makes you a member of a family, you're going to give me one of three answers. You're going to either say that it's by blood, by adoption, or by marriage. This is beautiful, guys. If you are a member of the family of God, you are a member of that family by all three of those ways. First, we are, we're given entry into God's family by blood, by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The second way that we're given entry into God's family is by adoption. Romans 8, verses 15 through 17 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the third way that we are given entry into God's family is by marriage. A couple of verses in Revelation Chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We, brothers and sisters, have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are members of God's family by blood, by adoption, and by marriage. So, given that we are members of the family of God, we ought to exhibit certain traits. Many of you have met my daughter, Olive. She's going to be two here in a couple of months. And if you have met her, you know how much she looks and acts like me. She's like a little mini-me. She has my sense of humor. She has my eyes. She has my smile. She has my patience, or at least the degree of patience that I have. So now you know that about me, that I have a toddler's degree of patience. I'm just confessing that so that you can keep me accountable. But there are a lot of traits that Olive has that are mine. And and as she grows, we begin to see more traits that she has received from her mom's side of the family, from Amy's family. And and those are are the good ones. Yes, those are all good. Amy truly is my better half. But just like Olive has family traits, even if I adopted a child, that child would begin to, over time, exhibit certain behaviors, attitudes, mentalities, worldviews that are distinctly Kogan, Right? Well, if that's the case and we're members of the family of God, what traits ought we to have? And I'd like to propose to you this morning that when Jesus prays for the disciples in the first century and he prays for us by extension, that there are six traits that he talks about. So that's, that's really where we're going to focus our attention. Now, if someone were to ask you uh, what distinguished the early church, what would you say? I think many ideas might kind of come to mind right off the bat. We might think of their suffering, the persecution that they endured, the the scattering that they endured as a result of persecution, uh, their their communal nature, they they decided to have all things in common. These are all traits that the first century church exhibited. But I would propose to you that there is one thing that is over all of those, and that is the trait of joy. In spite of their suffering, in spite of their persecution, in spite of losing jobs because of their profession of faith in Christ, they exhibited 
mind-bending joy in the Lord. So that's our, our first point here is Jesus prays for our joy in John 17, 13. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's a story told of a church service in Scotland, and I, I would be prone to believe this happened, where a member was sitting under the preaching of the word and became bored. That would never happen here, surely, right? And this member began to doodle. Is anybody doodling? This story is not about you. I <laughs> we do have a couple doodlers. That's okay. That's actually a helpful way for me to focus. And this member began to doodle, you know, drew a caricature of the pastor. And then when he was done doodling, he decided to jot down some lines. And after the worship service was over, the janitor found, scribbled on a piece of paper, these lines of poetry. To dwell above with saints I love, aye, that will be the glory. To dwell below with saints I know, now that's another story. How many can identify with that? I'm, I'm sure you aren't surprised to hear that that's not the way fellowship is meant to be. But we're encouraged in this, that if it came naturally to us to be in fellowship with one another, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to pray for that for us. But because he did pray for our joy, we see that there's not only a need for this joy, but Jesus also knows the solution. In fact, we need to look no further than the verse that we are in presently to see what that solution is. Jesus says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy. The source of our joy is the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. The foundation of Christian joy is biblical doctrine. Throughout Scripture, we see that knowing God is intricately connected with joy. Psalm 19 is one of my favorite psalms, and it says this, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in Scripture. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 14 says, I will rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And in John's gospel, just two chapters earlier, John 15, verses 10 through 11, Jesus tells the disciples, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So our obedience to God's word, which has as its prerequisite a knowledge of what God's word says, is the foundation for our joy. You may remember what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. We looked at this last week, but he didn't give them just an imperative without giving them the indicative. He didn't say, do this and go figure it out. He tells them the reason why our hearts are not to be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is what we see all throughout the Old Testament. God never gave us his commands without explaining to us the reason why. The Ten Commandments begin with, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. That's a pretty good reason to obey him, right? He's brought us out of slavery to sin, brothers and sisters. Therefore, as a result of that, you shall have no other gods before you. Now, I won't rehash the entirety of last week's sermon, but by way of reminder, Jesus was telling the disciples that having their hearts not troubled is based on the foundation of believing in him, knowing him as he's revealed himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned a few moments ago, many of you will recall the Beatitudes. This is the, the list of people who are blessed, right? Well, the word blessed comes from the Greek word, which means a few different things. It means blessed. It also means fortunate or happy. So you could interpret that rightly. Happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who... Uh, Help me out. What are some of the Beatitudes? Come again? Yeah. I knew that one. So, so we can interpret those. Joyful are those who are poor in spirit. Joyful are those who are meek. And that's, that's what I want us to consider today is that Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes that the foundation for our joy is by exhibiting these characteristics that are only found in God. In other words... Happiness is based on happenings, but joy is based on Jesus, right? 
That means that the circumstances, which literally circum around stances to stand, the things that are happening around where you stand, are not to dictate whether or not we are people of joy. We're people of joy in spite of our circumstances. Amen? Isaiah 26.3 says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Have you ever tried to focus on two things at once? Now, we can see multiple things at once. As I look out on you all, your beautiful faces today, I can see a lot of you at once, but I can't focus on all of you at once. I can only focus on one thing at a time. It's just the way that our eyes work. The Bible isn't talking about us being oblivious to what's around us. We're aware of what's around us, but the Bible calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I was reminded this week of a beautiful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Think about fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And as you fix your eyes on him, everything around you, you're still aware of it. It's still there, but it, it, it's blurry, you know? Our brother Brian is a phenomenal photographer, and I'm sure you've experimented with focusing on things, and, and the things in the background are blurry, or vice versa, right? That's the way that our circumstances are to be when we get our eyes fixed on Jesus. But Jesus goes on and gives further solutions for our joylessness. Communion. And I'm not talking about the little cups and crackers. I'm talking about fellowship. This comes from the word common union. Communion with our fellow saints. Communion with God. So maybe it's helpful to, yeah, to, to think about that in terms of common union. But um, do you think that you can have common union with God? That seems to bend our minds a little bit when we think about having common union with God himself. But Jesus, God incarnate, is described in Scripture as a man of sorrows. Can you relate to that? Is that a nature that you can have common union with? People of sorrow? Joyful, even in our sorrow? And this is part of the reason why Jesus came in human flesh. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when you're tempted, Jesus understands. He knows. He cares. And we can have fellowship with him in that temptation. And it is this same Jesus, this man of sorrows, who had during his earthly ministry, and has still today perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. So can we, through Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, but the very Son whose blood makes us sons and daughters, whose testimony changed us from slaves to adopted children, and whose righteousness makes us the church, his bride. Brothers and sisters, enter into this joy today. By the same means, Jesus does. Communion with the Father, communion with one another. We cannot forget that to have true communion with God, we have to have communion with one another. Because Jesus has communion with those sitting around you. There's a great old song by a Christian songwriter that says, If you love me, you must love the church. That doesn't mean that you're going to love the things that the people of the church do all the time. We will let one another down. We will hurt one another. Hopefully not intentionally, but it'll happen. I will do things at times that will frustrate and disappoint you. We've seen it happen, haven't we? And yet, our hope is not fixed in who is in the pulpit. Our hope is not fixed in who the elders are. Our hope is fixed in Jesus. Someone asked this week, what can we do to humanize hot-button issues? We see these debates online, on social media, on the news, 
uh, over hot-button issues, primarily political debate. And we see these divides happen even within the church because there are differing views. And somebody asked, what can we do to humanize these issues? And a wise friend of mine responded by saying, by humanizing those we we disagree with. Can you think of someone, a fellow Christian, with whom you have been angry or frustrated because of their differing worldview? I would venture a guess that frustration has impeded your fellowship with them. It's hard for us to be in common union with someone with whom we are angry. The absolute best way to humanize those with whom we disagree on secondary issues is to pray for them. It's hard to be frustrated with someone that we're praying for. It's not impossible, but it makes it more difficult. If your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your classmates would not describe you as a Christian as joyful, it may be because you have impeded fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you say, I don't need other people to be in communion with God, but I hate to break it to you. That's not the way it works. We need one another. The past three weeks have been difficult. And I have had to make it a point to make sure that my brothers and sisters in Christ know that. So I'm not trying to shoulder the burden of a difficult season alone. I need you. But Jesus goes on in John 17 to show us in his prayer a prerequisite necessity for our joy, holiness. Look with me at John 17, verses 14 through the first part of verse 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. I think holiness only comes second in Jesus' list of traits for the church, incidentally. He could only say one word at a time. And so he started with joy. He prayed for our joy. But then he goes on to explain that the way that we will attain joy in him is by being made holy. Now, there are two aspects to holiness that I want to discuss this morning. When you put your trust in Christ, you are immediately seen by the Father through the lens of the holiness of Christ. When he looks at us through that lens, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the perfect, righteous holiness of Christ, right? That's immediate. But then there's this lifelong process of what I call holification, I don't think that's in the dictionary, but it is a word because I just said it. Theologians prefer to call it sanctification, but I think it's, it's good for us to think of that in terms of holification, that we're being made more holy throughout our lives. You see, this is the case that God wants us to be happy, and we see this in the world and in, the, in even the lives of believers when we, we fight tooth and nail to defend our right to sin. We pick our pet sin and we say, the reason it's okay is because God wants me to be happy. He doesn't just want us to be happy in whatever. That's idolatry. He wants us to be happy in him. Right? And if God is holy, can an unholy creation stand in the presence of a holy God? Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis said this, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. We can't have joy without God. And we can't have God as long as we abide in unholiness. And if you have been made right with the Father, that instantaneous holification, the lifelong process of holification is a guaranteed result. But we partner with God in that. The first part is all of grace. But everything that comes after that, we partner with him. We lock arms with the Holy Spirit and say, Spirit of holiness, show me how to live a life of holiness. And we're going to stumble along the way. Again, in, in the disciples' prayer, Jesus taught the disciples to pray, 
forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So our question at the moment, what is holiness? Can we be holy by what we do or don't do? Some of you may have grown up with the I think this is a somewhat tongue-in-cheek mantra, but maybe you've heard this growing up. Don't drink, don't smoke, or chew, and don't go with girls who do. Anyone heard that? Is that holiness? It's kind of a trick question. Because it might be for some people. But that's not Scripture. Scripture doesn't teach us to not hang out with people who chew tobacco, right? So it might be the personal conviction of an individual believer not to do those things. So for that person, that might be what holiness looks like. But that's not the essence of holiness. The essence of holiness is to be set apart. Just this week, my friend Mark in uh, coffee on Thursday morning so eloquently put it like this. Legalism is Jesus plus fill in the blank. That is not the gospel. Legalism is a false gospel. A false gospel is false Christianity. And false Christianity is false holiness. So if the objective is communion with God, and holiness is necessary for communion with God, legalism is not going to get you there. Romans 10 tells us about those Israelites who sought to establish their own righteousness, self-righteousness, and did not submit to the righteousness or holiness of God. Genuine holiness in God is always God-centered rather than man-centered. I've I've used interchangeably the words holiness and sanctification. The, The same word where we get sanctification is the same word where we get the word saint. Who are saints? Get those hands up. We are saints. It's not a special category of Christian. It's not someone that some ecclesiastical organization has deemed a better Christian than others. If you are in Christ, you are sanctified. You are a saint. We see this most vividly in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. He's writing to address some pretty serious sin in the life of the church. And over and over and over, he calls them saints. We don't lose our saintliness by our behaviors, but our saintliness in Christ, our sanctification, our being set apart is a guarantee that we will bear fruit. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more in a few moments. Look at John 17, verse 19, where Jesus helps us understand holiness further by saying that he, for their sake, consecrated himself, or set himself apart, that they also may be sanctified. In other words, just as God the Son set himself apart for special use By God, so too are we set apart for special use. Does anyone have a a community toothbrush? (laughs) Rhonda does. Yeah, just a handful of them when guests are over. No, when, when we use a toothbrush, it is ours. It is set apart for our sole use, right? That's why she has 15 of them. That's good. So if we're already Christians, as as Christians, we're set apart for God, why did Jesus need to pray that we would be sanctified? Because of that lifelong process of being made more holy. But it also implies that we need to do this in community. And we're going to get into that in a few moments as well. I believe that the reason Jesus prayed for holiness right here is because of the means by which our holiness comes. And that's the next family trait that he prays for. We're to be people of truth. John 17, the second part of verse 17 says, Your word is truth. In the previous family trait, we saw that Jesus prayed that the Father would sanctify us in truth. And here he continues and explains that his word is truth. If we're to be people of truth, 
We must be people of the word. The flow of thought through this prayer from Jesus is really incredible. Unsurprisingly, it's Jesus praying. He is the living word. But think through this for a moment. Jesus prays for our joy and holiness and shows the means for both is through the sanctifying word of truth. We don't have here in Jesus' prayer a general wish list and no means of attaining it. Instead, Jesus asks his Father for exactly what is needed to achieve the desired result. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus' prayer is for us to be increasingly set apart, how are we to know to what or to whom we are set apart? There is written revelation of himself. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, enlightening the eyes of our understanding. That's why I often begin a a sermon by praying that the Holy Spirit would come be our teacher. As people of the Word, we have ultimate, final truth available to us in Scripture. And as we dwell on the Word with the Holy Spirit instructing us, it's natural for us to grow in holiness. The primary means God has given the church to grow in holiness is through meditating on Scripture. Not church attendance. Not prayer. Those things are all good. But they're not the primary means given to us to grow. The primary means is the personal in-depth study of God's word. This is where the idea of the priesthood of all believers comes into play. I am not your priest. Jesus is. He is the one mediator between man and God. Nobody between you and God. So you don't wait until Sunday to hear the word preached. Preach the word to yourself day in, day out. That's the means God gives us. And to be set apart people of God, we are to live distinctively. Undeniably distinctively. Our priorities, our agenda, our wisdom, our worldview are all to be shaped by Scripture. So Scripture, first and foremost, tells us who our authority is. It tells us who's in charge. The primary issue at the root of the Protestant Reformation was that Scripture is the final authority. Not even what I say about Scripture. Scripture itself is the final authority. Not the church. Not opinions. If you come up to me and say, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to say, where did he say that? (laughs) Chapter and verse, please. If you say it was a personal revelation, that has no binding authority. Hey, praise God that that you believe the, the Lord is speaking to you in that way, but that is not my final authority. Scripture likewise shows us what we are to believe. Our theology is to come from Scripture. Many of you have probably read the the classic work by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a great book, but it's not our final authority. And thank God, because in that book, he tells us to avoid controversial topics. And practically speaking, it is a good way to make friends. Every time you get together with somebody, you're talking about hot-button issues, you're probably not going to have friends for very long. But that's not our final authority, because the gospel is offensive. That's kind of the old cliche is, you know, you don't talk about religion or politics in friendly company. Well, there's probably a time to avoid talking about politics. There is never a time to avoid talking about the gospel, brothers and sisters. Here's what's great about this aspect of truth, though. When our theology is robustly biblical, those who genuinely have a hunger for righteousness, are attracted to that truth. That doesn't give me a license as one of your pastors to just be a knucklehead. You can't be a bulldozer. There are those who are hungry for the word who are not getting it. And when they hear that there's a church that is preaching the truth, unmitigated, unashamed, they'll come. And that's how we'll see growth. It's not through church growth tactics. It's through the the pure preaching of Scripture. 
In addition to our authority and our theology, our priorities are to come from Scripture. This means that we can't allow the implications of the gospel to usurp the gospel itself. See, we're commanded to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, yes? That is a result of the gospel. We can't put that first. We can't let the kindnesses that we try to do in our society as a picture of the gospel take place of the gospel. Additionally, our lives are to be thoroughly distinct. The way we live is to look different than the world. Let me give you an example. How do you spend most of your time? Is it distinct from your unbelieving neighbors? I read this week in a Business Insider report from a couple years ago, from 2016, that the average American watches so much television, it's nearly a full-time job. The average American watches 35 hours a week of television. Anybody got that beat? Don't admit that here. And I'm not trying to bash you over the head with don't watch TV. There's there's some good programming out there. I think it's fine to stay up to date on news and even some pop culture items. There's certain TV shows that if you're unaware of, you might actually miss some opportunities to share the gospel with people, right? But 35 hours a week? Please guard your time better. Our lives should be distinct in that way. Another barometer is how we spend the Lord's Day, how we spend Sundays. Are you actively trying to honor Christ on this day of rest? It's not just called the Lord's morning. I mean, what do we do the rest of the day we call the Lord's Day? Can those around you looking at your life say by the way you treat the Lord's Day that you are distinctly different? Not in a judgy, condemnation, you know, well, I'm better than you. Not in that sense. If they're getting that vibe off you, they're probably not getting a vibe of joy off of you, right? But are we living distinctive lives? Is anyone getting uncomfortable yet? It's okay. You can say it. I am. I'm uncomfortable because I'm talking about how we spend our time and how much TV we watch. And Well, how about money? I hope uh, this morning is not one of those days where somebody brought a guest and they go, come to my church, they never talk about money, because I'm about to talk about money. Our lives are to be distinct uh, from the world and the way we use our money. I'm not saying give all your money to Grace Family Fellowship. I'm saying what are you using the resources that God has given you for? Are you giving back to your fellow image bearers of God? Are you generous Unfortunately, if somebody looked at my bank statement, they would probably see that my top priority is Andy's frozen custard. John knows what I'm talking about. Uh, But say you have a bank statement and 90% of the things on there is Andy's frozen custard. I'm not saying 90% of the items on my statement is Andy's custard. It's more like 85%. But the point being, if you are using that as an opportunity for generosity... That's okay. But is the majority of the resources that God gives us being used on you, or is it being used to bless others? And are you giving to the ministry of the gospel? It is something that we need to wrestle with. I, fortunately, am not the one to try to hammer that down your neck. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But we ought to be mindful that it does cost money to keep lights on and you know, to pay for a lot of the practical needs that we as a church meet here in the community. So wrestle through that with the Holy Spirit. Again, fortunately, we're not just told to do better and try harder. We're not just told to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not told in the gospel that if you just stop watching so much TV, if you would just take the Lord's Day more seriously, and if you would give all your money to ministry, then you're holy. That's not how the gospel works. It's the lifelong process of being made more holy. The primary distinction between us and the world is that we, as people of God, are utterly dependent upon the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues in his prayer to show us what the result of our sanctification in the word of truth leads to. Now, these next three points, I'm just going to barrel through. 
I, I belabored the first three points. The next three points I'm going to kind of go through a little bit more quickly. So, the result of our sanctification, sanctification leads to mission. John 17, verses 18 and 19 says this, As you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We saw last week in John 15, and then in the next chapter, John 16, that we skipped over in the series, Jesus assured the disciples that even though they would have trouble in this world, that he had overcome the world. So the question becomes, since Jesus has overcome the world, why doesn't he just take us out of the world? We are told that heaven is a glorious place where there is no more suffering. We will no longer wrestle with our flesh nature, our sin nature. So why? I have a heavy question here. Why not just end it? There's a story told of a little girl who came into the pastor's office, and she had been at vacation Bible school all week, and she asked the pastor, can I commit suicide? And by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, he didn't give her a quick yes or no answer. He said, why would you want to commit suicide? And she said, because they've been telling me all week in vacation Bible school how wonderful heaven is, and you know my parents, and you know how hard it is at home. Why wouldn't God just allow me to take my life and go be with him and end the suffering? And the pastor said, um, you know, there's one reason that we are here on earth, and that is that by our testimony, we may have the privilege of seeing others put their faith in Christ. And years later, that little girl's mother came to faith in Christ. You may be in a season of trial. You may not understand what God is doing. You may not understand why he leaves you in the situation that he does. But we are given a unique opportunity to commune with Jesus in his suffering, in his temptation, in his trials, in his sorrows to bring the gospel to a hurting world around us. It is from this mission that we approach the central theme of Jesus' prayer and the fifth trait that we're considering this morning, the trait of unity. John 17, verses 20 through 23 says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. It would be oblivious of me to not acknowledge the fact that there are indeed divisions within the church. That's why Jesus prayed for it. It used to merely be along denominational lines, but it has always been that even within particular denominations, there have been divisions. There are a number of Baptist churches here in town. It would be silly of me to to pretend like there are not divisions. So what I want to do is over the next few moments, I want to try to bring some encouragement to us. One, to recognize where there is genuine unity. Two, to offer some clarification about what true unity is. And three, to work toward greater unity. So where there is already Christian unity is in the essentials of the Christian faith. We believe that in Adam, all mankind fell. We are born sinners. That's our nature. We believe that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the Savior that we need. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified in our place. He died was buried and resurrected on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. There is unity in the church, brothers and sisters. That is affirmed worldwide in the church of Christ. So what is true Christian unity? Well, what it is not is conformity or uniformity. Jesus is not praying that Grace and Truth Baptist and Big Creek and Family Worship Church and Echo and GFF would have the same dress code and music. Those things are incidental. 
He's praying that we would be united in mission. Are denominations an indication of division? No. In fact, earlier this week, Mark Dever commented that we live in a time and place where we often partner in the gospel with churches across denominational lines, but we meet in different churches because of one or two secondary doctrinal issues of conscience. The unity of Christ's body is not based on whether we are all governed by one leadership structure. We're not trying to make every church in Pleasant Hill an SBC. We're not even trying to make every SBC in Pleasant Hill look the same. Our prayer, along with Jesus, is that we would be united in the gospel. So how may we work toward unity where it's still in need of work? One practical way we can do this is by praying for one another. Do this this week. Choose another church in Pleasant Hill, or if you live in a surrounding town, choose a church in the town where you live and spend a few moments every day praying for that church. Pray for their pastor. Pray for their members. Pray for their mission. Pray for their joy, their holiness. Pray for truth. And pray that we as a church would be aware of our opportunities to be a blessing to those churches. It's one church. It's hard to think lowly of a church that you are investing time praying for. We'll begin to see them the way God sees them. Individuals for whom Christ died. And one other way that I'd like to encourage unity within the body is if you're not already involved in some kind of a small group, seek one out. Become involved in a small group. It's in that kind of community where holiness is really pushed. There's not a biblical mandate to be in a a church-sanctioned small group. But there is a mandate for us to be in community. So get involved in some kind of a small group, whether that's one that's listed on our website or one that you just kind of form with other believers. Maybe you're in a similar station in life. Maybe you want to be part of a small group with people who are in very different stations in life. But be involved in community. Pray for one another. This is a practical way that we can encourage unity within the body of Christ. Praying for one another, I believe, is the greatest act of love that we can do for one another. I could die for you, but it's not going to do you any good if I die for you eternally. The only one whose death does us eternal good is that of Christ. And so we in community are called to pray for one another. So the greatest act of love we can do is to pray for one another. And I think it's significant that we recall that Jesus began this list of traits with joy, but he ends it with love. Look at John 17, 25 through 26. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I believe Jesus ends the list of traits here with love because he wants it to ring in the minds of the disciples. And it clearly did for John. He recorded this in his prayer. I'm reminded here of Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Look there with me if you, if you can flip there quickly. Galatians 5 22, where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he goes on to list eight other things. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I believe those eight things are actually not separate fruits, but they are outworkings of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's like he's saying the fruit in this orchard is apples, There's Fuji, Granny Smith, Gala, Honey Crisp, Pink Ladies. They're all apples. Likewise, joy is what love looks like in practice. Peace is what love looks like. Patience is what love looks like. So Jesus began the list of traits with joy, and he concludes with love. It's kind of a a love-joy sandwich. And it's not just a general conception of love, but the kind of love that the Son has with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But how can we, as broken sinners, have that kind of love for one another? I love you guys, but far from perfectly. 1 John 4.19 gives us a hint. 
we love because he first loved us. Love is demonstrated for us at the cross. Now, again, we can't die for one another, but we can lay our lives down for one another. So in closing, I want to give you three quick ways that we can love one another. The first is by listening. In an age where everyone has a voice through our forms of media, blogs, social media, constant texting, it's rare that people actually listen to one another. So take the time when someone is speaking to look them in the eyes, to actually hear what they're saying, consider what they're saying. Even if you disagree, consider what they're saying. It is such a kindness to them to hear them, to hear where they're coming from, and listen to them with a heart of prayer for their well-being, for their growth in joy and holiness and truth. The second way we can love one another is by sharing with one another. I don't just mean sharing material things. That may be part of it, but larger than that, I'm talking about sharing where we are. This week, I reached out to several brothers and said, I'm having a hard week, and I need your prayers. I'm struggling with anger. And if I kept that to myself and I didn't share that with my brothers, I would have missed out on an awful lot of encouragement because each of those brothers came back and shared with me encouragement in Christ. Many of them shared the the idea that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Sometimes it was as simple as sharing with me, Jesus knows. He understands. That was such a kindness to me. And the third and final way that we can love one another practically is by serving one another. And I'll just call our attention quickly to the way Jesus, a few weeks ago in our text, stooped to wash the feet of his disciples, even those who would betray him and those who would deny him. We cannot truly love one another apart from serving one another. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are humbled that you speak to us through your word. The living word, Jesus, and the written word in Scripture. And we thank you that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Father, as we consider the prayer of our Lord, help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Help us to grow as people of joy, as people of holiness, as people of truth, people of your word, people of unity, and people of love. For our good and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.